Welcome to episode 108 of Bono's Health. Joined this time by Alan Bacon, Dr. Alan Bacon. Very fascinating story. Super, super fun conversation. He's joining us from Maui, the island in Hawaii. Uh, I can't wait to get back to Hawaii. I've never been to Maui, but I've been to Kauai and Oahu, and it's just amazing. So I am jealous of this man, where he lives, and uh, can't wait for you guys to dive into the conversation. And if you get something out of this, please help the show grow by sharing, liking, commenting, leaving a review, rating. And if you could just send it to one person, that would really, really help us grow, try to get this information out there. Super fun conversation. Dr. Alan Bacon, let's go. Well, come on. There we go. There it is. There it is. All right. We got to let the song rock a little. You have to play the game of when will we get copyright infringed <laughs> and sued. Uh, we'll let that rock in the back. We're joined by Dr. Alan Bacon uh, in Maui, Hawaii, the actual place, not just the name. Um, he's not Maui Athletics out of Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Thunderstruck is the song playing. I guess if we give credit, maybe ACDC, maybe they won't sue us. I don't know. Thank you guys I, for allowing us to have that. And he used it as his walkout song with his wife at, at his wedding, as uh, I was just informed. So fun fact, uh, you can use that at Trivia Night, folks, uh, and, and in the next Jeopardy thing. Did they, did, did they figure out who the, the new host is going to be at? Did I miss that? Is that? I thought that was like big national news. I don't know. I don't know I'm not sure. We don't get national news that much out here. <laughs> our news, are, it's very, very focused. We're kind of our own, our own little world here. <laughs> well, yeah, man. I, again, I'm I'm gonna try to become your best friend, so I have a place to stay. Some place to stay, yeah. Go out there, yeah. Because um, yeah, as we were just talking about before we went on, it's not it's not a cheap place. Um, but no. yes, yes. Uh, I I miss. I've only been to Kauai and Oahu. But if folks listening have not been to any part of Hawaii, any of the islands, um, you got to get out there asap. It's it's a pretty amazing place, and I'm very jealous that you get to wake up um how close are you to, to the ocean I'm, sure, I'm guessing oh 10 minutes yeah i mean so when we were deciding to get our house we we bought a place we're like okay well we don't want to be right on the water first off we can't afford that because right on the water in maui is kind of ridiculous mm, yeah but uh but there are benefits to being slightly away i mean whenever there is um you know heavy rainfall we can get some flooding on some of those low-lying areas so we're outside of that but you know with an easy drive we're kind of centralized and, uh, you know, the great thing about Maui is almost a similar thing that you see with like Miami, where if you want to go to a certain beach and you're like, oh man, it's raining there, just wait 10 minutes or go to a different mm -hmm. beach. And, you know, everything's within about half an hour of us. So yeah, there's always a place to hit up. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of Colorado. Our, our saying here is, uh, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, wait five minutes. Yeah. yeah. It'll change for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's always, always something crazy going on here, right where we are too, or right next to the flat iron mountains so you get this weird wind effect um and and just craziness going on uh sometimes it leads to destructive fires where 991 houses get destroyed on december 30th which we uh, had to escape from. but yeah that's a whole nother story but anyway uh let's move on to better shinier things um so we talked we touched base a while ago shout out to, to shane mclean um who uh, kind of connect us through some of the these articles muscle and fitness and um i'm sure a few other ones probably all the way back at barbend uh where you and i got to contribute and and i'm always mm -hmm. honored to be as i always say part of these these living legends i think we can say the the all-stars of the space um so always fun to be part of that um so shout out to him and then you were just speaking at the inland empire fitness conference 
Um, I have no idea. I'll be honest where that is, what that is, but, uh, I'm curious. We're going to talk a little about what you talked about there, but just tell us a little about the conference. Uh, the conference is something that's put on by a buddy of mine, Tim Arndt in, um, Spokane, Washington, and they build themselves and they truly are one of the most intimate fitness conferences in North America. And it's really cool because, um, you know, they get a large pull of, of some of the greatest speakers around the country um, and a lot of different coaches from around, around the country, both from uh, the United States and from Canada. And their build is the most intimate because um, Tim sets up all of these different dinners, after parties, all those kind of mm. things, um, lunches. And uh, the big thing that he has about this is you go to a lot of these conferences and they'll charge you an extra $100, $150 to have a ticket to be able to eat with the presenters or the, the you know, the conference mm. um, speakers. And at Inland Empire, we're just all kind of in there together. Um, you know, you if you're a person that's attending the fitness conference, you can go up to any of the presenters at any time, you know, obviously when they're not giving their presentation and just shoot the shit with them. And uh, and that's one of the great things about it, because you actually get to do those follow up questions. You get to meet people. It's a great networking type of event. Um, but it's really cool because you get to form um some more intimate relationships with some people that you might've been talking with a lot online. Uh, and you know that in our space in particular, um, our industry is kind of built on these virtual relationships. Mm -hmm. So being able to all come together, unwind a little bit, um, and, and be able to meet people is always a great thing. Yeah. That's uh, it sounds like a nice place to hang out. Uh, I also, I don't know if you know, Andrew Coates, I do. Um, yeah, I had him yeah. on, on here a while ago and he had just gotten back from uh, sounds like a similar type of conference down in Orlando that I think it was the first year they had put it on. I don't know if you were there for that. I forgot the name of it. So I apologize to Andrew and whoever the organizers of that were. But it sounded like a pretty cool. That might have been um, that might have been Nick Lamb's sleep conference. No, I think it was a okay. it was more fitness focused. Um, well, he does he does a whole lot of fitness stuff within his conference. Yeah. It's, it's called like the Professional Sleep Conference or something. Mm. Nick, don't be mad at me. I don't remember the exact <laughs> name. But That's... both Nick and um, and Andrew were presenters at the Inland Empire as well. Nice, nice. With me, yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump over to to uh, what you talked about there, and just uh, for anyone who's not familiar, Dr. Alan Bacon, obviously a name I think, and uh, I was just listening to another podcast you were on. Obviously, not a easy name to forget. Um, oh. everyone, everyone in the fitness space should love some bacon. Uh, you know, that's, that's always good. Um, but, uh, your background doc, the doctor is, uh, dentistry, uh, which yeah. is pretty, you know, that, that always stands out when you see that, I think. Um, and then that kind of circuitous path, uh, I think that's the right use of that word. I'm going to take five points as a Scrabble letter <laughs> or whatever, but, uh, I don't know how Scrabble works either. Um, but, uh, yeah, so. Uh, you you kind of took an interesting path to working with some different supplement companies as as mm -hmm. a uh, what, what would the term not consultant but uh... um, I'm, I'm a contracted formulator. Okay, and there you, so I hear that was um, a very specific name. Yeah, and so what what people would do is uh, if they have specific needs for a supplement that they wanted to put together, uh, they would they would contact me and and you know we would set up a a thing to be able to do whatever the the product is that they mm -hmm. wanted to do. And I've been doing that for. Um, 15 years at this point, a little bit over. And, uh, and that kind of got my foot in the door in fitness. And, um, you know, I was practicing seeing patients full time and, uh, and I turned to my wife at one point and I was like, you know, we're, we're always in the fitness space, you know, breaking down the research, doing all that kind of stuff, helping our friends. Why don't we set this up as a side business where we can 
monetize this a little bit, you know, for the time that we would be putting it anyways. And, uh, and like we were talking about beforehand, one of the big selfish things for me was I wanted to be able to write off my own apparel. Mm. So it gave me the chance to, uh, to make an LLC where I could design, um, you know, gym clothes and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then get into that, that space. But yeah. it was a, it was a good move for me because, oh shit, for the first three, maybe four years, I was continuing to practice as my main job and just doing this on the side. And then the company took off well enough to where it was a, um, a self-sustaining thing. And, you know, being able to, uh, own your own business that you can do from pretty much anywhere with a computer is always a great thing, particularly when you live in Hawaii and, mm -hmm. uh, and you can do that job from the beach. So yeah, there were, there were some certain quality of life pluses there. Yeah. That's definitely the dream is building that online empire that you can have passive income and or check in with folks and just be wherever you want to be and travel yeah. the world or be in an amazing location like Maui. That's awesome. Um, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to geek out on a bunch of the supplement stuff. I've had a few. Um, I think this is episode 108 or 109. I'm not even sure anymore. Um, but I've had uh, Rowan Blonix. I don't know if you know uh, Rowan Minion of Blonix. Uh, they do some him. HMB and creatine stuff. Um, I know that's one of the things you, you guys push, yeah, is the HMB creatine? I don't push HMB. I, no. I push creatine. Um, right. HMB, okay. unfortunately, doesn't look like it has any great data in humans. Okay. Yeah, that's that's always... <laughs> and that, and that, that's that's where, yeah, again, we I'd love to have those conversations. I'll just leave that one up in the air. Um, and then, uh, But they, they're big on that stuff. And then um, Mike Castelli of Nova 3 Labs, again, another mm -hmm. supplement company. You, so you, you're a little more familiar with him or mm -hmm. the company. And so... Uh, He's, he's two of the guests I've had previously, uh, just thinking. And as well, I'm having Rob Wolf on uh, September 1st for LMNT. So I'm not sure how you feel about the, the electrolyte piece of it. Um, um, I, so electrolytes can serve a real purpose. Now, do we need to have them in a general gym session? Probably not. I mean, are we really sweating or using up electrolytes as, as much as we think? No. But if you're doing things like CrossFit, yes, it can be very beneficial. If you're doing things like endurance training, yes, it can be very, very beneficial. Yeah. So... I mean, there are certain supplements that are marketed towards the bodybuilding space mm -hmm. that probably don't have a whole lot of carryover to bodybuilding, but it, it's, they either, you can either feel them with things right. like beta alanine, mm -hmm. um, or people just everyone, think that they everyone need, likes that tingle, yeah. workout tingle. <laughs> I mean, anything that, anything that can make people feel like what they took is working mm -hmm. can be at least the placebo effect. And I don't right. love using placebo, but I get why companies put that in because right. even if you put in like half a dose of beta alanine, I'm not advocating this, mm -hmm. but even if you put in half a dose of beta alanine, people will feel that. And then that can sometimes give you the ability to put in a whole lot of other stuff that really works because people need that initial buy-in sometimes. And if you don't do it, I mean, I've made some of the best supplements that, that I've ever um, formulated and I think are the greatest things ever. And they'll go off the market and they'll go off the market because you are putting things in that have um, distinct effects, but maybe they take some time to kick in. Right. And people want to feel that immediately. So that's why a lot of times people will put in things like beta alanine, mm -hmm. GABA, um, you know, anything that can make you feel yeah. a, an effect, glycerol, all those types of things. And like um, something like melatonin that often gets so overused. Overhyped, yeah. The not just overhype, but the, the over the counter dose or the recommended dose is like three grams. And you talk to, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I've heard a lot of sleep scientists talk about the concept of like, you probably need, if you're taking 500 milligrams, that's more than enough. 
And it's so, but that's the thing is it's going to knock you out at three grams, and you feel like you got more sleep. So what you're what you're on about is a hundred percent right. Now, if we look at if we look at the research for we're kind of veering off track here, but this is a cool topic, so I like talking. Oh, yeah, about I, just, I apologize, um, but <laughs> you'll bear with us. But uh, but this is a cool topic. Um, if you look at actual research for long term usage, now you're talking about milligrams. So three milligrams is what you're equating to three grams. Oh, sorry. Um, that's just that's just a flub, so people can understand. Please don't take three grams. Yeah, you're going to be unconscious. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what? There's a difference with how you would take it if, say, you were getting back from a tour of duty overseas and you're trying to adjust to a time frame for like three days versus if you're taking it every night. So what you're talking about is is 100% right. And what we have found in the research is anywhere from like 0.3 to maybe 0.8 micrograms is probably what people should be taking Mm. nightly. Now, maybe for someone of my body weight and size, I mean, I'm 230, maybe I should take a milligram maybe a little bit more, but, but it's funny because to your point, they start those things out at three or five milligrams. A lot of the time, it's difficult to find one milligram and good luck finding yeah. any micrograms. And, in, no, and no one's going to like take a, a bite of a third of it. <laughs> no, no, you're not going to do that. And I, did, and and I so, just, I looked it up just cause yes, I need to remember that it is milligrams, not grams, but yeah, they even right. have 10, 10 milligrams, yeah. uh, which is, seems a little insane. It's, it's huge. And, and so the problem that we see with, um, with melatonin is that taking those higher dosages long-term tends to kind of have an opposite effect on people. It tends to negatively affect sleep cycles. And it's really difficult to tell a person that because like I said, you can use those higher dosages short-term to adjust things like flight lag Mm -hmm. or, or, or some issues that you're having. And so when people are virgin to taking it and then they take three or five milligrams and it like knocks them out, Mm -hmm. they're like, okay, this is what I need to take. Right. And then they don't realize that long term they're probably doing themselves a disservice. Right. And that's where I, I challenge folks to get a bio tracker and track your sleep. And I have my whoop code somewhere. I'll put it wherever yeah. you're watching this or whatever <laughs> if you want to try it out. Um, but yeah, and I, and again, another interesting topic. I don't know if I dare open that up to to un, to get your opinion on on bio trackers and um so bio trackers. If you really want to get it, this is this is an in the weeds conversation, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and I've got the research on this because this is one of the things that um that I get asked a lot from clients. Um, biotrackers are great for telling heart rate and for telling um, certain zones of sleep. The problem is you can't use them extremely well to tell um, quality of sleep because particularly. Um, REM sleep, it doesn't really recognize it because what you have to realize is that this isn't like an electrode that's placed on your brain to be able to actually tell. And that's how they do it in sleep studies. They'll actually mm-hmm. place yeah. electrodes on your head and get a, a viable first reading from your brain. With things like these wrist-mounted trackers, they are taking a guess. And they're actually taking a guess of a guess because mm-hmm. they're using your heart rate variability to be able to put into an equation that's a guess. And so it seems to work okay for one or two stages of sleep and seems to be completely off for another stage of sleep. And so what I would ask people is, can this, is this benefiting you or is it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where you may be having problems? Because I think that a lot of people can look at their sleep and, you know, if you wake up the next day, do you feel recovered or not? And I don't think that we always need a watch to be able to tell that. And mm-hmm. um, 
And so one of my concerns is if it is not accurately telling one of the sleep stages and it's telling you that you are under-recovered, are you now believing that you're under-recovered because you actually feel under-recovered or is it because your watch told you that? And if we're right. using a guesstimate of a guesstimate, <laughs> you know, if it tells you that you're feeling great, that can be a really beneficial thing, but we can never predict whether it's going to say that or not. Yeah. So if you're, if you're using these things to tell heart rate, you know, particularly when you're doing like cardio and all those kind of things, if you can look at this thing as kind of like a, a catchy gadget to, um, to make you get to bed earlier and, and focus on quality sleep, yes, a hundred percent, please do it. Be skeptical about some of the results that those kick out, because I would hate for it to give you a nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. If you understand what I'm saying there. Yep. Yep. You know? And so, and so as long as we understand what this can bring to the table. And as long as we understand some of the drawbacks here, we can use these to our benefit or we can make the decision, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'll save my money on that and maybe I'll invest in something else that can help me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely acknowledge that there's a lot of uh, shortcomings of, of these devices. And again, when we talk in bio trackers in general, mm -hmm. I do throw out that caveat when I speak with clients about the fact that, again, I think the whoop is the gold standard in the in my research of the space which is why I, I like it um i you know really follow how they use the algorithms and again it's far from perfect but i do mm -hmm. think they're they're kind of leading the the way uh, along with maybe aura ring is is a is a close second is that um, the, the the ring a ring yeah the ring yeah yeah i think they i just personally would never want to wear i don't even wear my wedding ring sorry honey um, well, I, I get worried about that in the gym yeah. scuffing scuffing that thing up you know yeah so i obviously i think they have in, they they have it somewhat figured out that um you can you know manipulate it or or it does it shouldn't affect your working out but yeah i just i have a, the silicone uh, 20 dollar mm -hmm. ring that i will wear from time to time but even that i don't like to wear i think it affects my uh, feel of of whether it's the barbell or the gymnastics rings or whatever so mm -hmm. um but yes to the whoop uh again i do think it's a tool at the end of the day and and it's just how you use that tool and right. uh, having the the knowledge of again if it tells me Hey, like you're not doing so good today, and you're like, but I feel great. Um, that that can be good. a problem. Go with yeah. go with that. I feel great feeling, and yeah. ignore the other feeling. <laughs> yeah, and then and then say, okay, well, so if this causes you to critically look at your sleep, yes, you can use this to a really big advantage. Mm -hmm. So if it says that you're not recovered, but you feel okay, feel okay, that's great. Yeah, but take an, take a second to look back. Okay, what did I do last night? You know, did I actually lose sleep, or is this like one of those errors that popped up? And right. if you did lose sleep, is there anything that you can do to correct this? And if you are if you are using it in a conscious manner in that way, I believe that it can offer you some very distinct advantages. Yeah. And, I, and I'll say again about the whoop. It's pretty fascinating because my wife's in the third trimester pregnancy right now. So she's been really closely monitoring and using it again as that tool. We work with a functional medicine practitioner because she also had a, a diagnosis of an autoimmune condition that has allowed us to kind of, uh, you know, again, day to day with intention uh, of how to use it and and you know again as a tool of saying hey i'm gonna do 10 minutes of cardio in the morning and some breath work and you know just resetting the cortisol concept because we can't measure cortisol uh rhythms every single uh morning so it is giving us a little bit of sense of that you could obviously use it without you can do all that without the the tracker but it gives us a little bit of extra data and she's had some really mm -hmm. interesting data and within the, the pregnancy piece it's going into the group and seeing how certain people and again even to the sleep point uh, how it's interesting again, and it's not a true scientific study, but, uh, she can, uh, compare and contrast even with our OB, uh, that, that we're using, uh, his wife, uh, he was able to look at her whoop data. So it was really interesting to have that kind of further conversation with our OB of, mm -hmm. Hey, you're going to have less deep sleep in 
your third trimester. And in the first trimester, you, you know, it's going to affect you this way. And this, you know, so it's been really interesting of what to expect, how mm -hmm. she's feeling, how she's using that information to a lot of the points you're saying. So there's a lot of really cool stuff there. Uh, I know uh, the last thing I'll say about this, this topic, cause uh, I know we got some really fun other topics to get to is um, I don't know if you're familiar, they have published some interesting studies that the whoop specifically was able to um, uh, diagnose uh, unofficially uh, and and uh, detect, that's the word I'm looking for, detect COVID before the PCR would even be positive based on respiratory rates that it's tracking. So again, uh, they actually published that in, I believe, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and basically, I know when I got, and again, another thing that goes around like the communities uh, and the folks that do have whoops is when you're positive for COVID and you get a real good dose of it, especially I don't even remember the names of all the original uh, waves, Omega or Delta or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, but those those first few, um, when you check your recovery, you're at one percent recovery, which is like <laughs> if something's you're going like, uh -oh. on here. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, there you know there are. I I haven't seen that study specifically, so I can't talk to that the 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 exact nature of that study. But theoretically, if we are monitoring heart rate and COVID has well, the, the thing that they were, I, I, I want to, I want to jump in because uh, the thing that they're actually tracking, which is again, to me, mind boggling is respiratory rate. And again, to, to think, and it's like, I don't know how the, I, I'll be honest. I don't know how they're tracking respiratory rate on my wrist. I don't mm -hmm. know what the algorithm is. I don't know what they're doing, but uh, basically the theory there is that it's, it's um, you shouldn't be moving more than one point. So my respiratory rate on average is 16.0. Mm -hmm. If one morning I wake up and it's 18.0, they're like, something's going on. They're going to put in all the other data points of mm -hmm. uh, skin temperature, heart rate, all these other things that they're tracking. Again, they, they're doing some some pretty interesting stuff, to say the least. Um, but, yeah, that's 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 the thing that they, the study specifically spoke to is the respiratory rate. Well, if you can accurately track respiratory rate. <clears throat> um so this this gets most of the information that whoops and those things get are from a uh, from a heart rate variability and a temperature standpoint and and pulse and stuff like that because that's what it can it can easily monitor mm -hmm. there um it would make sense it would make a logical thought process to say okay well can we see if this affects covid because covid certainly has in many people a distinct cardiovascular component mm -hmm. to it and pulmonary component to it right. And, um, and if you can monitor heart rate variability and then make a predictive equation that is reasonable, you could see effects like that. Like I said, I can't speak to this exact, um, this exact study, but the grounding for it is, is solid enough to say, okay, let's check this and see if this works. Because I do think that there's some information there. Now, this is another thing that's kind of an adjunct to what you're talking about, <clears throat> but I think it's really important to bring up because when you asked about, um, you know, the validity for sleep and recovery. One of the big things that I see people, and I don't know if Whoop does this, so this isn't Whoop specific, but I see a lot of people use these wrist-borne trackers to monitor calorie burn. Oh yeah, no, no, no. They cannot do that. No, let's, let's. And, <laughs> and, and, and again, I want to bring this up because this is a cool topic and, and we're yeah. kind of, we're kind of in this. Um, they use heart rate variability to mm -hmm. tell calorie burn. Right. Guess what doesn't tell calorie burn? Heart rate, heart rate variability. variability. Yeah, for sure. Not tell calorie burn. Um, for sure. I think they're so, also doing it based off of, um, <clears throat> they're doing a basic BMR calculation for anyone listening, basal metabolic rate. And they're saying, hey, you're five foot eight, you weigh 185 pounds. It tries uh, to. Right. I yeah, think that's but, what they're, they're, the ones that do. And again, I don't look at for, again, that's one data point that I am like, that's completely useless to me. Uh, if I'm tracking my workout and it tells me I burned 600 calories, I'm I'm certainly not of the mindset, and I'll I'll warn anyone out there that doesn't mean 
you can now go have that Big Mac or whatever that's 600 calories. No. It doesn't it doesn't quite no. work like that. There's but... not a, there's not a coach in the world. It's funny because everyone wants to use this information, but there's not a coach in the world that monitors their calorie output. Right. And then I think I, I think nutrition. I heard you talking on um, Jason Leonard's uh, podcast about this concept exactly. So and and shout out to Jason as well. Uh, yeah, he's I a great guy. Him, had him on here. He, I know you were on his. Um, and your wife was also on his podcast. I got to go and listen to that episode, correct? I, I've done podcasts with him about half a dozen times now, actually. We're, <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm a repeat of well, 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 he does his four-part <laughs> series, which is, the, the mm -hmm. first time he told me that, I thought we would record like two hours and he would chop it into 30-minute segments. No. But no, he did literally four <laughs> separate hour recordings. Like I, yeah, have a, and... I now have a date every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. with Jason Leonard. So um but he's 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 an awesome dude um but yeah. I, I think i did hear you talking about that fact of like uh again the calorie piece is is definitely one to throw out the window and yeah um, yeah for yeah. many reasons and, I, and I, i'll try to link uh somewhere down below for folks who want to go check that out because again like you guys talked about it there was a lot of dense information in there and i mean that in the most positive way in that it's 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 a lot to unpack and we're, we're kind of diving into these really cool topics that we didn't yeah. want to we didn't even want to go here so <laughs> <laughs> i mean but it's they're they're good topics to talk about i yes. mean hopefully it doesn't it doesn't throw people off too much but this is these are questions that a lot of people have in fitness mm -hmm. and um and getting some minds together to discuss it can always give a little bit more clarity to the subject hundred percent. Yeah. So thank everyone for bearing with us on this, but, <laughs> um, and yes, the, the real big takeaway there is bio trackers, their tool. I would, I'll, I'll conclude with saying I, I have a lot of use out of it. Um, my wife does as well. And I know a lot of people who benefit from using it, but it's also knowing when to not, uh, utilize that here. Well, I gotta, I gotta go one other place with this to the, to the kind of central nervous system recovery piece. So again, anyone who's done a really heavy lifting day and then the next day they feel like their whole body's kind of needs that recovery. And then it's a question of, do you push through or not? That is again, a place where I would have some uh, semblance of usefulness, but without the tracker, because I don't expect every single client to go out and get a tracker. And again, I don't know how accurate the Apple watch or the Fitbit are. I don't trust them nearly as much as I trust something like the whoop. Another real quick anecdote about the whoop, and I don't mean to make this a whoop uh, infomercial, but um, when they came out with their latest uh, design Amazon, I believe as a company was trying to come out with something similar. And they literally, um, if you take off the thing and put the micro and you look at the microchip underneath, it literally said, you can't copy us, Amazon. And like, they made it so that <laughs> they kind of, uh, you know, firewalled like it. Yeah. Yeah. They threw the shade, but, but yeah. So it was interesting that, and again, I, I, I listen to their podcast. I, I like their CEO, Will Ahmed and um, he's a Harvard guy and, and, uh, you know, I kind of know people who went to school at the same time as him there and things like that. So maybe I'm a little biased in that regard, but, um, that's the last bit I'll say about, whoop, I think, um, <laughs> um, but the place I wanted to go is without the bio trackers, if I have a client and I don't know how you feel about this, but having a data point of something like hand grip dynamometer, which is $25 one time cost, maybe you need batteries for it, but. Uh, assessing that. And then again, as a way to test your nervous system, again, I think we, again, anyone who's worked out at any point in their life, they go into the gym and they're like, Ooh, like doing a pull-up feels weird today. Like whatever you feel that within your body, there's that intuitiveness to it, having those deeper conversations, but something like a toe touch. So if I just drop down and I like normally can get to my, you know, touching my fingertips to my toe. Um, and today for whatever reason, after a heavy deadlift day yesterday, I can only touch to my ankle bone um or you know the bottom of my shin then like that tells me something's off and either i need to kind of obviously i can manipulate that pretty quickly but if i'm 
genuinely checking in with my nervous system. Those are some of the ways that I've been able to, over time, uh, assess uh, if somebody without the biotracker is recovered enough and we might need to change something in their programming without being there one-on-one -on -one with them. So I don't know how you feel about those kind of concepts. I think that that's fine. I mean, what I what I do with with my clients is a little bit more, I, I just go by feel. And so I always have my clients, I, I express the importance of um, monitoring, you're keeping a logbook, a, 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 mm -hmm. a distinct logbook of your lifts. And I mean, I don't, I don't want a general, I want, what did you lift for set one, set yeah. two, set three, set four. And we do progressive overload over time. So we run the same program, depending on what, what we're doing, because I work with both strength athletes and with physique athletes. Mm -hmm. And so we'll, we'll do different programming depending on what your goal is, but <clears throat> we may run a program from a month to three or four months. And typically for my physique clients, we'll just run it for three months and then we'll progress. We'll use progressive overload during that period. Um, so they should have outside of that first week or two, a good basis of where should each lift be because we, we progress load. I give set variables for, for, um, sets and, um, reps typically, um, and set rest periods. So we have some stability in how we put things together. And so you can often tell how your recovery is doing by what are these numbers doing week to week? You know, right. if, if your sleep was shit or your stress was shit the, the week before, um, are your lifts significantly down? Well, holy crap, maybe they are. And so we realize that, okay, we'll dial, we'll dial that load back a little bit today. Um, and, uh, and work with what we can. I mean, it's an all or something, not an all or nothing. Right, right. And so do the something that you can do, control what you can't control. And I mean, that's a big message in, in all of fitness where it's always control what you can't control. Um, but but this is more of an intuitive and, and subjective experience, you know, for my people. But if you have something that you like to use, like, a, uh, you know, a hand grip test or something like that, you can certainly get similar information. And you may be able to get more distinct information from that um, because you have an objective number there. And so I've got no problem with you doing that. I mean, I think that that's, you know, not that you need my permission, but what I'm right. saying is I actually think that that's a, a, a very viable idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another, so, another one of those was, um, for the functional fitness athlete who has a concept two type rower, whether you call mm -hmm. that CrossFit or whatever is, mm -hmm. you know, you should be able to warm up with a two Oh five on the rower for three minutes. Yeah. And again, if like, you're do your like, 500 meter. Yeah. Something like that. And, and, but again, very, very low level as a warm up. Right. And, but, but also not, that's the thing. It's, it's the getting into the science and the nitty gritty of if we're at 50% of your max effort, like, is that too light? Uh, mm -hmm. if you're at 65% and you're struggling at 65%, should we be doing that next lift of trying again, when you're talking into Olympic weightlifting and you're trying to snatch at 90%, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's where you can get into those dangers where, again, if you're doing that under fatigue, which is one of the biggest criticisms of the mm -hmm. sport or the, the, the concept of CrossFit, where you're doing very highly technical things with some level of danger around it. Um, that's where we get into some, another whole topic. I'm sure you can go off on with all sorts of funness. I can see it. You're, you're the wheels turning in the brain. I, I love, I love talking <laughs> fitness and, and I, I absolutely love it. And, and so we could go off and talk about anything all day, as long as you want. Um, and that's one of the problems with having me as a guest is that like, I have opinions. Yeah. That's, um, our, that's, the, that's the problem, but also the reason we're here. Right. So, yeah. So my wife is a competitive or was a competitive CrossFitter. Um, she was a regionals athlete. She for a while held the American record in snatch. Beth, in her, Beth Bacon, right? Mm -hmm. Beth? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we went to worlds. She competed. She got silver in worlds in, uh, in her, in her weight class. 
And, um, and so she did really well. So I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of, I love CrossFit. I don't do CrossFit myself. You don't um, look like you do, yeah, <laughs> but I love CrossFit. And so people will throw a lot of shade at CrossFit, which I feel mm -hmm. is undeserved because if you just looked at the guys in a bodybuilding gym that were doing squats on a BOSU ball, you would be like, bodybuilding stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and so what you see when people make fun of CrossFit is you see these like videos of the most ridiculous type mm -hmm. of programming that CrossFit has, but that's not what CrossFit is. Right. You know, those are outliers and they're fun to make fun of because it's just kind of funny to see people do strange things. But the mm -hmm. same thing happens with, with bodybuilding that happens with yeah. strongman. And, and I think that it's not for me, but the athletes that put themselves into these situations are incredible athletes. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that, um, that this is something that, that people really need to be, to be conscious about. And to your point of, you know, should you be running up and throwing 90% on your snatch and immediately going, if you're not feeling right? No, absolutely right. not. But I think that that's one of the reasons that you progress up. I mean, you do your warm up sets and you kind of build up and if things are feeling off, you say, okay, well, I'm dialing it back because, People always talk about how form is this huge thing that's going to increase injury risk. And they don't realize that form is, is relatively low down that ladder on what's going to increase injury risk. Um, training age, sleep, nutrition, um, mood, um, you know, Hormones, all of these things, all all of these things are more yeah. important than form. And I'm not saying that form is focusing on form is bad, but I'm saying that if you look at the relative hierarchy of what's going to increase injury risk, you being fatigued is much higher up there than you having the absolute perfect form, you can get by with 80, 85% form on pretty much every lift and you'll be completely fine. Does that margin of error become smaller with things like snatch and clean and jerk? Absolutely, because they're extremely technical. Mm -hmm. But for the large majority of lifts, particularly for bodybuilders, you can be sloppy and it's not really right. an injury risk type of type of situation. And, and in, in a fact, lot of- I would, I would just quickly make the argument that in bodybuilding, the being off on your form and training there allow makes you more resilient in a lot of ways to, you know, so you can make that argument that strongman type stuff is a nice, uh, sorry, I'm just going off on my, my thing now, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I know. I think that, I think that you mean like putting in some more dynamic movement, more, a little, a little bit more, uh, body more dynamic, but again, let's, let's take the deadlift as an example. Again, everyone likes to argue about the rounded back deadlift versus intentionally training the rounded back of, Jefferson girls. Yeah. Well, Jefferson, right. That's a fun one that some people, and again, I literally just had a client, uh, who had a pretty significant injury. She's a personal trainer uh, locally here. And um, I was, I was kind of talking to her and, and talking through what she's got going on as a physical therapist. She's definitely got some weird symptoms and sciatica mm -hmm. and things. And she was loading up her Jefferson curls to like 95 pounds. And I was like, did you progress to that over the course of like three and, years? And that's, and that's the key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she was like, she was like, no. And I, you know, I give the example that, one of the most famous examples of the Jefferson curl, I think, that became is, is Christopher Summers, a uh, uh, U.S. Gym, uh, Olympic coach, and he was on Tim Ferriss' podcast. So I think that got probably one of the most famous uh, examples of that that I've seen in terms of uh, general population in that regard. But he talks about the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, the men's team specifically that he worked with. Uh, they will build up over the course of a year to get to – they start at like five pounds. And over the course of a year, full 12 months, they'll build to half of their body weight. And even there, they're like, they're, that's still being very cautious, things like that. I think this, this particular personal trainer that I'm talking about was doing it for reps. She was training it thinking, again, it's, it's some kind of great magical healing tool. And, and I think it was one of the main contributors to 
what she has going on now. <laughs> I, I think it is a great magical and healing tool. I love Jefferson curls. But, I, I love but, it as well. But you have to progress it. And a problem with Jefferson curls is people start to treat it like their conventional deadlift. And you right. cannot do that out of the gate. You are right. nowhere near as strong. You know, if you have not been doing Jefferson curls, you are nowhere near as strong as you will be on a regular deadlift. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that this might be up your alley. Do you remember Anna Tunicliffe? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, she was athlete? like, she was a lanky, lanky. Yeah, do you remember lanky. how she deadlifted? Do you remember? Oh, you yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was complete stoop oh, deadlift. Yeah. Like, I, and, I don't know if I can do it justice. With the... Yes, it was. It's very, very rounded. And yes. um, and I remember watching her and people losing their minds over it and me being like, this is how she's trained for right. years. Like she's not she in an a, increase in I think she was a rower. Was that, was that one of her backgrounds? I don't know if that was her background or not. I just remember how distinct that deadlift was. And yeah. there is a study called um, Dry Sharf 2016. And they did, an, a, they, I can bring out other studies if you want, but that's the one that I remember <laughs> off the top of my head. They did a, a look at stoop deadlift versus the squat type deadlift, which is your typical conventional type deadlift. Even though it's not a squat, that's what they just termed it. It's mm -hmm. that, that hinge deadlift. Um, and they found that loading was only 4% different on the spine Compressive loading was only 4% mm -hmm. different on the spine with the, with the stoop position. Now there was a little bit more axial loading in the upper lumbar, but in the lower lumbar and in the upper sacral, there was less shearing force than the upper lumbar or there, or there was less shearing force than the squat type deadlift. Mm -hmm. And that upper sacral lower lumbar is the most affected places for injury in these types of lifts. So it's funny because we look at this and we say, you know, people will look at people with rounded backs and they'll say, okay, you're in an extreme injury risk because you're doing it this way. But technically they're, they might even be protecting that yeah. part of the back that has the most injury risk. Now I'm not advocating doing stoop deadlifting as like your major, <laughs> your major form of deadlifting. I'm just saying that Maybe the way that we look at these things is influenced by the fact that we typically learn to conventional or sumo deadlift. And then all of a sudden, when we try these stoop types of deadlifts, we are stupid and we put on too much weight Yeah. instead of letting our body adapt up. And it's amazing what your body can adapt to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the last covering, thing we're covering the gamut. We're here. covering, we're, we're going all through. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about that, because I is one thing I'm very passionate about and I, I can open up another Huge can of worms is the nuance piece there is for novice athletes, especially when I'm working with folks. And again, in the rehab space, if someone's coming to me for back pain, I'm confident I can get, you know, your grandmother and, and or whoever, 80 year old woman coming in with back pain. I'm confident I can get her at least deadlifting, let's say the 35 pound kettlebell sitting on my floor right there. Uh, mm -hmm. If not even the 53, if not even the 70 pound, just because, you know, if she's able to get up and down off a toilet or walk up and down stairs. She probably can and, and just needs that technique and confidence and, uh, oh. you know, almost positive mindset, empowerment, whatever we want to talk about, which we're going to go into in a second, which <laughs> we've been meaning to. But my, my last point on that is I see folks there. And then when you do when I do work with them and I know this is another fun piece in the fitness space of should you feel things like that in your back? So I for me, from a rehab perspective, working with novice, especially athletes, if we're talking about more. Uh, experienced lifters, we can argue of maybe you should feel a little bit in the low back specifically, but I very much, as soon as someone tells me I'm feeling it in my low back, I say, time out, let's lower the weight, let's fix the technique, let's do that, um, whether I'm working with them virtually or in person. So that for me is one of the biggest things. I don't want anyone to feel anything in their low back. The argument is we should be strengthening the low back muscles, the erectors, all the fun stuff there, but I think there's a lot of nuance there, and I'm sure you have some fun opinions to share. But uh, and then after this, we're going to go to to the main topic we were meant to. So 
I I don't I can't disagree with that. I think that this is going to be one of those things that you're going to have to evaluate every patient on a patient mm -hmm. by patient basis. Um, you know, does this person have osteoporosis? Is this person completely detrained? Have they never trained in their life? You'll you'll certainly get a lot of older people that have never trained in their life. And um, and I think that promoting <clears throat> a natural spinal um, orientation is probably the right way to start. Maybe in combination with stoop, if you deem it, if you deem it uh, 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 possible. But I don't think that you're you're on a wrong track by saying, okay, well, if we're going to focus on something, and we want to work on a hinge type movement, I, I'm not going to start people off on a stoop, right? To begin with. Right. Now, is this a good thing that could be used to strengthen the lower back to be used in a rehab situation? Yeah, I love Jefferson curls, mm -hmm. but I'm probably not going to be starting anyone out in their fitness journey on Jefferson curls. I probably won't. Right. I don't think I've never done that. I've never thought about doing that. It's just one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, are you experiencing this back pain? Should we put this in as an accessory movement later when you're more intermediate or advanced lifter? Yeah, yeah, then start to put that in and really stress that, okay, this person now has some body awareness, mm -hmm. which is, I think, more critical for a Jefferson curl than it is for a standard conventional deadlift. Um, and now they're a little bit more adapted. So even if they, um, even if they get, um, you know, a little bit out of track in their movement in a stoop, which I think is more possible in a stoop than it is. And this is just anecdotal. This is just my opinion. <laughs> I think that well, you that, might that's be what able we're to, here for. That's what we go out of track a little bit more there. Um, I think that, that having that conventional deadlift experience is going to have those adaptations in your soft tissue, which we look for to help reduce injury risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that you're on the right track there by probably not throwing someone into a stoop unless there is a distinct rehab reason to do it. Well, and just, just to for like add a little clarity to that, it's not necessarily throwing them into a stoop. It's even right. just trying to teach them the deadlift as soon as they or pick something, again, a kettlebell up off the ground. If they are able to have that body awareness of, oh, like uh, it's like I'm in a leg press machine and I'm just trying to drive mm -hmm. through my legs and that's what should be. And it is that bracing and body awareness. Those are the really the things we're teaching. And again, the way I structure a lot of these concepts and i'm continuing to build that and i love chatting with folks about uh the, the the bigger concepts and can we find like a unified eventually that's the my grand vision just as important as peace on earth and and you know no human going hungry <laughs> i think that if we can get you know all the fitness people to agree on one thing um you know it's it's can we have higher quality yes um <laughs> but it's 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 a mission worth fighting. It's a, um, it's a no. It's a very yeah. noble goal, and I and I applaud you for trying this. Um, but that's the thing is is I think if, if if at least I can get most of my guests to to kind of be on the same page of, or at least uh, I'll share my that that vision, and and you know you can push back wherever it's worth pushing back is. Um, again, how well do you hinge? And if you and I look at an athlete and we we see like, hey, I'm giving them a C minus on their hinge. And you're like, I, I think it's an A or like that's acceptable to me. That's totally where I think, again, a lot of these conversations can be really fun. Um, and and But at the end of the day, to me, they're doing their best to hinge or lift something up off the ground with a hinge pattern. And if they but to, again, if they feel it, that's the other part of it is can we get to a place where saying, hey, I feel this in my posterior chain. I feel it in my glutes. I'm sore the next day in my hamstrings and my glutes versus I'm really sore in my, my low back and my erectors. Mm -hmm. And for most people who are not very experienced, that's the, the red flag for me of like, we did something wrong and we got to 
address it. Another one there that I see a lot in a lot of CrossFit gyms is a, a good morning. Uh, I would say, oh yeah, I would say 90, <laughs> 90%, because it should be a pure hinge pattern. It should be the same as an RDL, uh, you know, these kind of things to me. It's the same exact thing, just where the weight is on the on the back rack versus down yeah. on our on our thighs or shins. And um, that's another one that just gets done so poorly. Um, it's kind of amazing to me. But yes, we went off on many tangents. We're going to come back to uh, unless you have a and I'm sure you have closing thoughts on that part of it. But I'm going to I'm going to cut you off as the host here. Take the you, 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 <laughs> I, I only have one quick, I have one quick <laughs> all right, thought. All right. All right. When you do good mornings, if you have issues with with form with that, consider using a safety squat bar. It's yes. much more comfortable if yes. you have it available. I did see a really cool cue. I haven't tried it yet, and and Shut I haven't up, actually man. done this. Is <laughs> is putting your hands up on something? Uh, I'm kind of on the window here, so I'm not going to push too hard. But using that as kind of a closed chain loop to then give you better concept of the hinge. So if you have that kind of, it's it's an if, interesting one. I haven't played with it yet. If I was gonna, if I was gonna try to get somebody to learn the hinge a little bit better. I might have them sit down. Have you ever seen seated good mornings? Yes. Yes. I, actually I might have them sit down and do some seated with just the bar at first, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. that will teach you to actually hinge instead of trying to squat that up. Cause you can't squat it up when you're seated. Right. And right. so that, that might be a better way to get a person as a it, heuristic. It takes away at least one degree of freedom. If you want to call it that right. for sure. Right. But funny thing on that, I had someone, one of my clients doing that, who's trying to, again, I'm trying to work with them to learn these things. Uh, and at home, he didn't have any weight. So he used a watermelon that was probably a good 10 pounds in a kind of goblet hold and that watermelon. So his wife sent me the video of him doing a I mean, watermelon goblet. He can, he can use his wife. Yeah. Put her on his back. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So are we done with that one? We're going to move into your. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> so all the way back to Inland Empire Fitness Conference, where you spoke about this whole big concept of self-determination theory, what we're going to start at. Uh, motivation and just the concept of motivation. So we talked talk about a lot of the, the nitty gritty uh, where we can geek out on the academics of it. But when we get to the client <clears throat> facing piece and for anyone out there who's a client um, and one other last thing I do want to think connect these dots is we're talking about uh, wearables and all this stuff. I think the big takeaway for me to give folks is hire a coach one way or another and it might yeah. be expensive. And even if you do that, you know, obviously go with whatever you can afford. But I think that's a big thing where, again, we if you work and, and a lot of the learnings I've had, even as a practitioner, even having a doctor in physical therapy, even having I've calculated, I've spent half a million dollars in education on the body. Um, it's kind of crazy when you do the math. But what I would say is having a coach and I've had multiple coaches, whether it was through CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, gymnastics, whatever those uh, modalities are, having a coach, I've learned just as much, if not more, uh, by going through that experience and having that conversation and that feedback back and forth. So a coach like Dr. Alan Bacon um, <laughs> of, of Maui Athletics. So I don't know. I wanted to put that in to connect these dots because motivation is going to come and go, but also it's sustainable. It's, I think, what we're going to get into of, of um, how do we help folks? How do we help clients on that path? So does that, does that kind of connect to what you want to talk about here? Yeah. You know, just to give uh, a quick outline of what I want to cover here is I want to first talk about general motivation and some of the, um, some of the semantics that I use to kind of help conceptualize this. And I think that, that when people talk about motivation, it's always this nebulous sort of thing. Like, People want to have motivation. They don't know how to define it. They don't know how to find it. They they, they kind of just stumble into it sometimes and then they lose it and they don't know what to do. 
Um, <clears throat> so what I like to do is I like to explain to my clients, and this can be something that coaches can use too. And, and I specifically talk about this to coaches because I think that we have a lot of information about um, movement patterns, programming, nutrition. And as you saw with us just rambling on about this stuff for 45 minutes in a, in a great <laughs> conversation about all these things, like we, we have all this background information on a lot of different things. Um, but I feel like formal training really underprepares coaches for, um, for motivation. And it's one of the most important things that our clients can have. And um, I think what can help is to look at things in a certain way. And what I like to do is I like to explain to my clients that there's a difference between your true why or your commitment and your motivations. Now, again, this is semantical. So someone else can have a different definition of this, but I think that this is a way to put it into perspective that you can use it to your best advantage. So your true why defines where why you are committed even when your motivation is zero. It's your core reason for action. Now, the great thing about your commitment or your true why is that it stays constant for longer stretches of time. Your motivations, on the other hand, are a bit more fluid. The intensity of motivations ebbs and flows, and they evolve readily as your clients' experiences or as your experiences shape how um, you view yourself. And so <clears throat> I think that it's good to define these two things because I think that a lot of people feel like motivation, they have to have motivation to be successful, but you don't need motivation to be successful. You need a commitment to why you're doing it. And I like to explain to people that it's similar to brushing your teeth. Are you motivated to brush your teeth? I would argue no. Most people aren't motivated like, yeah, I really want to go brush my teeth. It's something that you do because you are committed to a healthy lifestyle in some manner. And the barrier to entry for the habit was low. So it wasn't one that was difficult to foster. Now, motivations can be used as boosts that can help you achieve your commitment or your true why, but they're not required to be successful. So getting that out of the way can, um, can give some people clarity on what can keep them going through times when that motivation is low. Now, what's interesting about the, um, about commitment trumping motivation is that a lot of people think that an intense feeling of motivation is required for them not only to be successful, but they feel like if they don't have that, then they're doing something wrong. But if it's not necessary to be successful, that's when you can look at this as, okay, well, it's time for me to fall back on the, um, the habits and routines that my, that I, or my coach has in place as well as why you are committed to keep you going. And when you use that, that is your base. That's your grounding force throughout your entire journey. Now, whenever you have motivation, that's a bonus. That's your boost. And not only can that boost get you, um, you know, get you progressing even faster than when you're just at your baseline, but it can be used to reinforce those habits and routines that you're putting into place that will keep you going long after you've graduated from uh, your, your coach's coaching. And so I think that putting it in these terms can help us put them in a more usable manner than just trying to think, okay, well, I just need to be motivated so I can get this done. And if I'm going to give you one single most important point from this is that um, every choice that we have, that we make has a price, either our time, emotional energy, or money. When we're motivated, it's easier for us to bear the inconvenience of action rather than the pain of remaining the same. What we essentially do is cross a mental threshold and make things happen. Now, the biggest issue that most people have is they get stuck in a rut waiting for motivation to happen. I mean, how often have you heard from your clients, I'd like to start Monday? Yep. 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 Monday's bullshit. 
this this Monday becomes next Monday. Next right. Monday becomes next year. Right. Or everyone's favorite New Year's <clears throat> resolutions. Do not wait for that. <laughs> and the reason that you don't wait for that is because <clears throat> what you're essentially doing is you're waiting for motivation to happen. But that's not how life works. Motivation quick, frequently comes after starting a new behavior, not before. In other words, motivation is the result of action. It's not the cause of it. Getting started even in small ways will often give you that motivation that you were waiting for all along. And that's why this is literally the most important thing that we could talk about because it will stop you from that procrastination stage that a lot of people get into and just saying, okay, I need to take these first steps. Nearly all the friction in a task is in the beginning, and it's easier to continue moving forward once you take those first steps. It's essentially a snowball rolling down a hill of motivation and productivity. So figure out what you want to do and take those steps to get moving, and it'll, you'll you'll make it a lot easier on you rather than trying to wait for motivation. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to add in that most people know what the right things are to some extent. We can certainly, again, go back to our 45-minute argument over what's the right supplement, what's the right dosage, what's the yeah. right X, Y, Z, but people know they need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. They know they need to eat less crap. They know they need to get into a gym one way or another and get some kind of movement going. Um, so those three things, like at the end of the day, 99% of workouts and coaches are going to give you the same variation on all those things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's just how do, how do you connect to that? And that's where I think the majority of most successful, even social media influencers, the fitfluencers and things like that, they kind of can tap into that. And they manipulate it a lot of times. Um, mm -hmm. and they're showing the sexy bodies and the guy without a shirt on dunking a basketball. And I'm not picking on any one particular account that you might be aware of as I'm saying it, but, um, <laughs> but at the same time, the, the other part that I wanted uh, to add to your, um, excellent, excellent. I want to like take that and bottle it and, and put it in a pill form or something. But, um, but is, is the five whys? I'm, you might've heard some variation on this is you want to lose 20 pounds. Again, most people can connect to that really easily. And, mm -hmm. and again, it's like what I've literally had people ask me, what's the fastest way to lose 20 pounds? Like we can cut off your arm, like wherever the 20 pound mm -hmm. mark is. Um, but you know, all jokes aside on that is, okay, why do you want to lose 20? Why not 19? Why not 21? And yeah. then what's magical down, about this number? Right. And then you go further down the path of like, well, why again, do you want, uh, do you want to feel better? Do you think that's really going to help? Cause again, like brushing your teeth, we can connect the fact that you brush your teeth every morning and hopefully every night as well, whatever the, the recommended dosages are. But, um, but it's because you don't want to have tooth decay. You don't want to have like, you know, yellow, unattractive teeth. We highly value looking good and things like that. And there are ways you can get teeth whitening and all that stuff. But uh, the whole concept of losing 20 pounds again is like, well, do you want to look good naked? Do you want to attract a partner? You know, there's the joke that mm -hmm. once you're married and, and you're in a happy relationship, you know, it's, you get the dad bod and, and things like that. And you just let that go because you're not trying to attract a mate. Um, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter to you to look good, but it is that connection. And for most, some, some people it's like, Hey, you have a kid. Do you want to be able to walk them down the aisle 20 years from now or whatever? Um, you know, if, if it's your little girl and, and things like that. So it's sometimes for folks, it is going down that five, why questioning. And again, I think yeah. the best coaches do that really well. Yeah. You typically, you typically won't get the right answer for the first two whys at least, mm -hmm. you know, why do you want to lose weight? Well, I want to be, I want to be healthier. Okay. But why, you know, and you, and you keep going to, to kind of elucidate that, um, that true commitment, like, what does it really mean to you? And people get embarrassed to say, I want to look good naked. And there's nothing right. wrong with that. Right. 
you know, it might not be your entire reason. <clears throat> it can be your entire reason, but it, it might not be your entire reason. But there's no reason. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good in a bathing suit. You know, and if that's what you need to get started, there's a difference in what you need to get started and what you need to stay motivated and committed for the rest of your life. Yeah. And anything that you can grasp on to get started is a good thing because you can pick up those other things along the way. But you can't make up for lost time. And that's why Monday is bullshit. So figure <laughs> out what you can do. And it doesn't yeah. have to be full commitment today. You don't need to go out and get a coach today. Yeah. But <clears throat> can you start eating a vegetable at a goddamn meal? Because most people won't even eat those right. daily, let alone, you know, at, at every meal. So, you know, start asking yourself, okay, well, what's the, what's the lowest barrier of entry to, for me? Right. Can I, what vegetables do I like? Can I eat them once per day? Start there. That's it. You're, mm -hmm. you're not waiting for Monday. You've all of a sudden got started. Go out for a 20-minute walk. You're not waiting for Monday. You're going out for a 20-minute walk this evening. You know, it, it's figure out what you need to do. If the answer to that is, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, then the answer is get a coach. And it's not yeah. a it's not a cost. It's an investment. And like you were saying earlier, if there was one thing, and I think that this is one of the reasons that we get into coaching a lot of the times. If there was one thing I could tell my younger self, I started lifting at 17. And I'm 40 now. If there was one thing that I could tell my younger self, it would be to get a coach. Mm -hmm. Now, there has never been a better time than now to do that because back then I would be trusting the random guy in <laughs> small town, Western Maryland, yeah. where I grew up. Whereas now you could literally get any coach online in the world. And I have clients in Australia. I've got clients in New Zealand. I've got clients all over Europe. Um, literally every continent except Antarctica, I have clients. <laughs> and so it's, I point that out not as a bragging thing, but to, to show the availability of coaches. And you can get a coach for like $200 a month, all the way up to like $5,000 a month. But honestly, there's not that big of a difference between them right. in most cases. Usually you're just paying for a name. So I, I've had people come up to me and they say, well, I can't afford a coach. And I'm like, well, what, where did you, where'd you look? And they're like, well, I just went to find the people with the largest following on Instagram. I'm like, that's <laughs> Yeah. And this is not to, this is not to say that like a large following on Instagram is like a good or a bad thing, but if you're going to choose somebody like that, you're going to be paying for name, not necessarily qualifications. Yeah. And so if that's a barrier to you for you to get started, um start doing some more research on on other coaches. There's certainly a lot out there that can that can help you out. Mm -hmm. You know, and um and and make those first moves. Like I said, getting started is the most important thing. And then motivation typically follows after. So whatever gets you motivated to start looking into things, grasp a hold of that and, and get running and figure out what you can do. Yeah, 100%. All right. So um, <laughs> let's get into talking about some self-determination theory because I think that this is really important. And it's one thing that I really do want to get into because I think that this can help people a lot. But before I really get into the weeds of self-determination theory, I want to... Um, it's a psychological theory that explains how we are inspired to action beyond abstract concepts such as willpower, motivation, and personality. One of the things that I like to do when I start talking about this with people is cover a concept um, to help put things in perspective. For any given behavior, uh, our actions can be placed into one of two general camps, extrinsic or intrinsic. Um, when our motivations are intrinsically motivated, it's a drive inside us. We do something because we enjoy the action, not because we expect a reward from it. When we're extrinsically motivated, we do something for purely for the reward. Um, and it's generally something that we don't necessarily love to do. So an example would be um, 
maybe you don't love working out or exercising, but you like having abs or you like feeling strong. So the effort's worth the cost. Now, this distinction is extremely important. And it actually goes back to one of the things that you were saying earlier. And I, and I was grinning when you were saying it. Um, but uh, I think that it's a really good point to bring up. We're extrinsically motivated through things like apps, um, competitions, specific physique or performance goals with timelines. And this is what you were talking about when you said, okay, I've got a client that says they'll come to you and they'll say, I want to lose 20 pounds in two months. Now, this is an extrinsic type of motivation. Um, and the, the other types of things that you can get from that are a constant praise from a coach, which can, which can be problematic. Now, we have to be careful when we use these as our motivations because extrinsic rewards and extrinsic type of goal setting can undermine the performance and drive that we naturally have. Um, so if you have a client that comes to you and says that they want to lose 20 pounds in two months, if you get to that two month mark and you have two pounds left to go, sure, it can give you the energy that you need to push through, but it's not something that you can control and it creates a lot of problems. I mean, this, this creates really problematic scenarios. No matter what the outcome is, it creates a problem. If you, um, if you do succeed, in reaching that goal, then you've lost the thing that gave you a sense of purpose to begin with. Now you have to start all over again at either baseline or no motivation and try to figure out something else that will get you motivated. If you don't reach that goal, which you had no control over to begin with, then you feel like a failure. So when you live your life as a sequence of milestones to be achieved, you live in a state of near continuous failure. And this is really problematic because like I said, it damages the drive that a person, the intrinsic drive that a person already has. If we are already intrinsically motivated to do something, adding in things like spots on our leaderboard, um, client spotlights or prizes as rewards can damage the joy that we get out of the process. And what's even worse about that is it's, it, it's worse when it's repeated. So typically what we'll see is the, a person will have an extrinsic type of goal, like losing 20 pounds in two months. And, um, and they will hit that goal and it will give them this big boost of motivation. And then they'll say, okay, well, I want to lose 10 more pounds because this is an extrinsic type of goal. What ends up happening is it starts to work in the opposite direction and it pushes you away from the joy that you're getting out of the process. So, so you initially get a bump from this, but the longer that you use it, the more it kind of saps the joy out of the process. You start doing it because of the obligation of, oh, I've got to, I've got to lose 10 pounds. And you start missing all of those ancillary benefits that you get from lifting. You start missing the, um, the way that it makes you feel. You start missing the fact that you are gaining some lean muscle. So maybe that's adding weight to the scale. You start missing that you're looking better in the, uh, in the mirror. And it really damages the long-term drive that people get out of the process. Now, you have something to say there? I got a lot of things to say, but it's fine. <laughs> if, you're, if you're on a roll, I'll let you roll. I'll, I will, A, I was going to say, this is part of the reason I have my tattoo that I have. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Unilome, but it's basically, it's, bas it's a Buddhist um, and a few other religious symbols that uh, normally it's more of a, a line. This is added, uh, the tattoo artist made it more of a wave uh -huh. uh, thing. So some people think it looks like a question mark, which is a nice double meaning for it. But basically <laughs> it's, it's, it's the journey of life and you're on the process and eventually it's it's a symbol for the path to enlightenment mm -hmm. so you're supposed to get to enlightenment kind of at the end here but the reason i'm bringing that up or it, it's connecting to me of what a lot of the things you're talking about is it becomes falling in love with the journey and you know all these philosophical mm -hmm. concepts zen and the art of my, uh, motorcycle maintenance and things like that if you will so it's it's pretty fun and again one thing real quick that, that again I'm, I'm sure 
uh, you can go off on as well is instead of goal setting, which a lot of people talk about, and you can talk about smart goals and being very precise with your goals mm -hmm. and making sure you have some different concepts there. I, I talk about process setting. So it's not just, I want to lose 20 pounds in two months. It's I want to get to the gym this amount of times and do this kind of thing, or I have a coach, I'm going to invest this much money. Again, you talk to, you know, you look at Russell Wilson, who just moved here to, to Denver uh, for the Broncos football guy, and he spends over a million dollars a year on his body. So yeah. it's like that commitment, like you're saying, the investment. So it's that <clears throat> mind change, the, the change in language, all these different pieces to understand that it is not just the 20 pounds. And maybe that's the first step, but it's continuing that conversation and allowing that opening, getting the foot in the door to uh, go down this path. Well, what you're talking about is is having people, and this is a whole goal setting thing. And actually, this was part of my my presentation, but I kind of cut it because I wanted to get self determination. <laughs> what you're talking about is learning and habit based goals rather than these, um, you know, distinct physique and performance goals with timelines that you have no control over. Right. You have control over learning and habit based goals. So what you're saying is exactly how pe people should be setting goals. Um, you know, when you set your goals as learning and habit-based goals, you're focusing on the process rather than the outcome. Mm -hmm. The outcome you can't control. Now, you can control general trends if you control the process along the way. But if if a girl came to me and said, I wanted to get from, you know, 100 and this is just a typical thing that I see a lot of times. Um, you know, if a woman came to me and said, I want to go from 155 pounds to 130 pounds, but they've never lifted before. And like we were talking about, all of a sudden you start adding lean muscle mass, but you look better at 138 pounds. Did you fail? If you let people set goals like that, they will think that they failed right. a right. lot of the time. Now, if we move away from that and, you know, coaches need to take scale weight to have the best information that we can to be able to adjust nutrition. That's just the way that it is. We don't have to have the scale weight to adjust nutrition, but it's more precise when we do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would love to be able to do this without, without asking scale weight. And in certain clients, I, I actually cut scale weight from our, from our tracking because it's causing more emotional and mental harm than good. Um, but people get married to the scale and then it becomes a little bit problematic. And, and like you said, by focusing on learning and habit-based goals, we set our levels of success to something that we are in control over rather than something that, that feels like it takes over our lives. Right. And yeah. like I said, if I didn't, if I didn't need this to be the best coach that I could possibly be, I would not use it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so, that's yeah, go, uh, go ahead. <clears throat> so I, what I wanted to do was, was we talked about the fact that there are two different things with, with extrinsic and intrinsic types of goal setting. Now, when you're intrinsic, you're more internally motivated. And that's not to say that extrinsic goals or extrinsic types of goal setting can't have value because like we said, it can get you started on a journey, which is great. But it's more important to find productive internalized motives within ourselves. And so this is where self-determination theory comes into play because it allows us to internalize these motivations into a more productive form. Now, internalization refers to the active attempt to transform one of these extrinsic motives into personally endorsed values and identity. And in self-determination theory, we don't talk about it specifically as extrinsic or, or intrinsic, but rather on a continuum of self-determination. We're on one end of the spectrum. We have self-determined behaviors that are more intrinsic in nature. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have non-self-determined behaviors that are more extrinsic in nature. And we're typically motivated by um, by some self-determined choices that have some extrinsic motives on the side. I mean, maybe you want to, maybe the real why for a woman wanting to lose weight is because she wants to gain more confidence when she goes to the beach, but receiving praise from others can add in. So that extrinsic motivation from receiving praise from somebody else can certainly work to your advantage as long as you're not relying on that to keep you go, keep you going. Mm -hmm. um, now there are certain assumptions 
that self-determination theory makes that it's, it's good to understand because it can help us utilize it to our best advantage. It assumes that people want to be challenged to grow, master those challenges, and integrate their new experiences into their identity. It assumes that the more internalized motivation is, the more effective it will become. And so the external extrinsic types of motivation, they can be beneficial, but they typically are beneficial as an adjunct to a more internalized base rather than by themselves. And that optimal development does not happen automatically. So there's three things, there's three intrinsic needs that we should be fostering in our clients or in yourself if you're a client and you're taking this journey by yourself. There are three things that you should focus on that can give you the best chance to make the most self-determined choices whenever you are choosing what behaviors you do on a, day, a daily basis. And the first one is autonomy. This deals with independence, not isolation. It feels that when you believe that you're in control of a situation, you're more likely to take action. And for the coaches out there, you can, you can motivate your clients in this way by giving them choices, explaining to them why they are the choices and acknowledging when a client has preferences over certain things. And there's certainly various ways that we can get where we want to go in fitness. So by giving a person choices, you gain a mental and emotional buy-in from them for the process. And it, it will ultimately help you because it cuts through some of the uh, decision-making that you have to go through and figuring out what will keep them motivated week to week. Um, the second one is competence. If a person feels like they're able to do something, they're more likely to do it. And, uh, and you know, the more a person learns and practices, the more skilled they feel and the more likely they believe that they can succeed. Now, I warned you earlier about um, constant positive feedback as a coach because that can initially work very well, but then the more you give them feedback, it's almost like it doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm -hmm. Unexpected positive feedback will increase feelings of competence. Negative feedback has the opposite effect. And that's why the words that we use matter so much. And like you were, we were talking about earlier, the way that we frame things really makes a difference. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that if you frame things in a negative manner, like I can't eat donuts rather than I choose to eat Mm -hmm. you know, uh, eggs and, and oatmeal, right? There's a difference in both the feeling of autonomy in that situation, because you're choosing to eat the, uh, the eggs and the oatmeal, but also competence in that you don't feel like you're in control of your own choices, or you're able to manage the situation because you can't stop yourself from eating whatever it is. Now, there's certainly going to be times where we choose to eat the donut, but for the majority of the times, viewing it as taking control of the situation is much more beneficial for our clients because it promotes that productive behavior that we want. And then the last thing for coaches um, and for people that are doing this on their own, relatedness is extremely important. This deals with a sense of belonging. And so um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't work out solo, but it suggests that having a support structure in place is extremely important for optimal development of a person. And you can do this through things like a Facebook fitness community, a gym community, and CrossFit is particularly good at this. This is one of the reasons CrossFit is so successful because they have such a strong fitness community that things like bodybuilding generally doesn't have to that same extent, at least in an individual gym level, um, or from somebody like a, a, a good coach. And um, this, this enhances, um, this is enhanced when a person feels respected in what they're doing. Now, without these connections, we lack the help and support necessary to optimally develop. So by increasing feelings of relatedness, it helps you or your clients feel not only someone who is in control and how they face their actions, but who's skilled enough to make it happen. This aids us in problem solving. It aids us in emotional support. I mean, if you have, if you're starting out on a journey and you have questions, 
Um, what are you going to do if you're by yourself? And that's not saying that you have to have a coach, but at least joining something like a, a good fitness community or figuring out the right people to ask questions to on Instagram um, can all be beneficial. And then you feel less stressed over situations. You can you can make the right decisions for you and generally experience much more success because of it. Now, the really great thing about self-determination theory is that um, it helps people take responsibility for their behaviors. People take both credit for their actions and responsibility for when they fail, which allows people to learn from their setbacks. So think about a person who has had has not met their monthly fitness goals. If they're high in self-determination, they'll look back over what they did over the past month, believe that they can make some changes to that and put those forward in the future. If you're low in self-determination, you may make excuses. You could look for people to blame. Um, you know, make excuses about the situation or deny that you had any part in the process. But most importantly, you won't look to make any changes to any mistakes that you have made. And, um, you know, working with self-determination and this type of motivation doesn't mean that you won't fail. You're probably going to fail. There's a difference between failing permanently and failing temporarily. And when you have high self-determination, you can look back over those situations and realize that failures simply become temporary learning experiences for you to be able to progress further in the future. So let's get into the continuum itself. This is what you can actually use. If you have a question about this or, or um, you know, don't feel like writing it down right now, you can go to MauiAthletics.com and type motivation into my blog and scroll down and you'll find the motivation article that has this information for you. So you don't have to uh, uh, rush to write stuff down at this moment. Did you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to ask actually, and maybe you are getting there. So maybe I'll, I, I could have pulled back there, but um, is there an operationalized definition and or a validated tool for measuring because you were saying if you're obviously we can speak in the the kind of uh con conceptualized self-determination theory you're saying if you're high in it versus low in it um we certainly can have an understanding of that but mm -hmm. is there an actual way to measure it uh, again in, in psychology i'm sure you're familiar but for the listener you're measuring love it's a very <laughs> ambiguous concept yeah. so you have questionnaire to say <clears throat> you know you got 26 out of 30 points so that's where you are on that scale so the way that the way that you do measurements of this, it's still it's still of a semi-subjective nature, but you do it through understanding the continuum of internalization. So what self-determination theory does, and more specifically, a sub-theory of self-determination called organi organismic integration theory, it puts motivation into six subtypes. And so you can look at what um, how you feel about a situation and how you feel about what um, motivates your behaviors. And then you can generally find a baseline for where you are on those six subtypes. And that can give you some clues into how you can nudge yourself gently down that continuum to a more internalized form. And so obviously, as we talked about, the more internalized, the more productive your actions are when you're, uh, when you're taking those, those, those actions. So the continuum is a motivation, external, interjected, identified, integrated, and intrinsic. Now, I'm not going to talk about amotivation really today because amotivation is itself a state of apathy. And although being apathetic about a negative action such as smoking can be a good thing, you're not really going to make yourself apathetic about things and, and coaches can't help you become apathetic. And so um, it's, it's something that's not really worth talking about, although we know it's there. So you can identify yourself in that stage if that's where you are. But the other five forms can be used to your advantage. And, um, and this is where I find this is very beneficial beyond regular talks about motivation. Because when you regularly talk about motivation, 
it's like I said, it's nebulous. You have no way to classify this. You have no way to have clues on how to find your next step down that down that road to a, a better understanding of why you want to do something or um, or what can motivate you to take action. So by having these um, these five particular forms that you can look to for some some guidance, you can um, better help your clients and better help yourself. And this can certainly be used in, in things beyond health and fitness. I mean, this is something that is extremely beneficial for life in general, for business, uh, for literally anything else you want to do. So like I said before, it's a continuum progressing from um, the most extrinsic to intrinsic. Uh, the first is, um, is external. This is the least autonomous. This deals with things that you don't want to do but you um, want to receive a, an external reward from someone else or avoid a punishment from somebody. Um, big examples of these would be um, universal needs such as money, fame, power, all that kind of stuff. This is where things like um, constant praise from a coach fall into play. Um, you know, when people go for a jog so they can earn a piece of cake, hmm. they, they, they want to get a reward for doing something that they don't want to do. Um, and these are problematic because, like I said, these damage intrinsic drive and stifle higher complexity productive tasks. Yeah. So moving down the continuum, we get to interjector. This is, again, a very external type of extrinsic type of form. And it deals with a person's ego. This deals with internal rewards and internal punishments. There are still things that we don't want to do. But we do them because maybe doing it will give us a sense of pride or not doing it will, like, will make us experience guilt. Um, we see this in a lot of cases like with fad diets. And I don't want mm. to I don't want to um, downplay any particular diet. You know, if you're a fan of keto, or if you're a fan of carnivore or primal or whatever it is, you can certainly make most diets work if you have enough knowledge of nutrition to cover any of the, the gaps. I mean, an omnivore diet is certainly the easiest and probably the most straightforward because a lot of the others have nutritional gaps that you have to account for either in supplementation or through specific food choices. Um, but we see this type of ego thing a lot with men and primal as an example. A lot of men will choose to eat primal because it will make them feel um, like they're a caveman. It'll make them feel alpha or whatever it is. And, and my question for those people would be, if this is a way that you don't truly like to eat, is this something that's going to be sustainable long term? Probably not without a lot of stress along the way. Mm -hmm. So then we move down the continuum and we get to identify. This is where things actually start to become um, very productive. Identify deals with can I, value. Can I just stop for one second? Is is, sure. is this the so we had autonomy? Is this that same continuum of autonomy, competence? Mm -hmm. Did I miss the, the third one? Uh, it was external interjected. That's the. Third oh, you're one. talking about the intrinsic needs. Uh, well, the autonomy, competence, and relatedness are the three intrinsic needs that uh, must be met to be able to improve yourself down this this this, gotcha. con this internalization continuum. Um, so those are important in your personal growth. So now is, we're on a different path now. <laughs> yeah. So those those three things are what are needed to be able to progress you down this this continuum. You need to you need to feel like you have some choices. You need to feel like you are good enough to handle those choices. And you need to feel like you have the support structure to be able to fully mm. develop. And when you do this, you can make more self-determined choices. Now, the specific motivations that you have will fall into one of these six general camps in the, the continuum of internalization. But you need those three intrinsic needs to be met to be able to progress optimally, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I just want to kind of bring it back. Clarify to that. Framework, yeah. yeah. 
so we get into identified next, which is the the third of the five that we're talking about. This deals with um, personal values and goals, and um, and we might talk about this. And remember when we mentioned that um, form is important, but it may not be the most important thing in a in a fitness journey. If you're like eighty five percent good form or ninety five percent good form, you probably if you're ninety five percent good form, unless you're you know an Olympic athlete that's really trying to 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 progress, maybe you don't spend all of your time on form work. Maybe you actually start to progress uh, progressive overload. That, that there, movement. The basic concept I'll throw in there is minimal effective dose, right? That I think yes, uh, we yeah. talked about, or a minimum level of competence in in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of, yeah. If you're to allow you again, to get like, going, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you and then you realize that you can still work on that form, but you don't need to specifically spend two hours working on that form. I mean, there's there's I don't want, I'm thinking of a specific guy, but I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. There's a specific <laughs> guy online that tells people that they cannot squat with a bar until they can do like a complete pistol squat. And I think that's absolute mm. nonsense because I think that, that some barbell squatting is certainly easier than a one leg pistol in a lot of instances for people. So why hamper yourself in this when you're, you know, you're doing something else. So for personal goals and values, the reason that, that an example of this would be, and the reason we talked about, um, about this perfect form ideal is that say that you have a client or you yourself are able to hit the depth that you want to hit in your squat. You're doing the movement in a way that's fine. You're not, you're not in any injury risk, really. But for you, it's a personal goal to be able to have textbook perfect form. Does this matter to anybody else? No, nobody else gives a shit. Nobody cares. <laughs> but for you, this is personally relevant. So because this is personally relevant for you, it's going to greatly increase the chances that you get into the gym and you work on this. And that's great. You can use this to your advantage. So then we move to integrated. This is the last extrinsic type of motivation. It is extremely internalized. So it's a great thing. All these four that we've been talking about are, are a progression of internalized forms of extrinsic motivation. Integrated deals with a sense of self. It's a core sense of being. Now this can be good depending on how you, it depends, it, it, it deals with how you self-identify. Now it can be, um, it can be beneficial or problematic depending on how you self-identify but when you self-identify in a productive manner it's extremely beneficial so if a person views themselves as a gym rat that's going to greatly increase their chances they that they get into the gym whether or not they want to go to the gym that specific day whether or not they find that enjoyable now this shares a lot of um characteristics with intrinsic but it is not intrinsic overall because you're still not doing things for the pure joy of the situation you're doing things because you view yourself in a certain way but it can be used to a great advantage to yourself. And then the last one that we get to on this continuum of internalization is intrinsic. This is where we want to take ourselves or take our clients if we can, even if it isn't always possible. Now, it's not necessary to be successful to get to intrinsic, but it sure makes things a lot easier. Um, when you're intrinsically motivated, this is that internal drive that we were looking for and talking about earlier. This is the all the buzzwords. It's joy, um, com like pure commitment to, the, to it. Um, self-esteem, um, all those good things that we're looking for. Now it's the most productive because you rarely have to motivate yourself to do something that you truly enjoy doing. And, um, and so if you love working out, regardless of the, um, of the benefits that you get to your physique or regardless of the performance benefits that you get, you're going to get in and you're going to work out anyways, because you actually enjoy just exercising. And yes, there are people that do do that. 
There are, you know, and, and a lot of people have a, a problem wrapping their head around that, but, but there's a lot of people that like to work out because working out is enjoyable for them. And so this is where we want to take people, even if it isn't always possible. Um, and bringing this all together is important because it can, this can feel like an overwhelming talk in the beginning, particularly when you don't have the visuals that I had available at, at the conference, which is why I was saying, you know, going to MauiAthletics.com, go to the type I'm, of I'm, at, in the I, I'm actually working as you're speaking to pull this up, but uh, I'm up. just having a little bit of uh, <laughs> technical difficulties on my end, but I'm going to pull up the visual in a second for anyone watching. Okay. Type in motivation and go to, um, I think it's a, it's a few. I, I have, I think I have one that you're talking about of the full continuum. And unfortunately it's, uh, it's, I need to figure out how to uh, rotate it 90 degrees right now. But is that, is that one of the ones you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. Uh, I don't know how to, for me. yeah, it's sideways. So <laughs> I'm going to so remove in the, that uh, for, for now. Okay. I'll, 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 I'm working to rotate. <laughs> okay. So bringing this all together is important. <clears throat> Finding your why or your commitment, like we talked about in the beginning is kind of an irritating thing. I mean, it requires a lot of introspection and it requires some knowledge on the topic. And like you were talking about, I mean, if you have to ask why five times, most people won't do that kind of thing because mm -hmm. they think that they should know, but you're not going to know until you start to get into this and really start to map this out. Um, and just as an example, for me, when I first started lifting, I was six foot one and 165 pounds. I was a high school athlete and viewed myself as such. So I had a little bit of integrated motivation and in then I viewed myself as an athlete. But most of the reason that I started lifting at 17 was ego driven. I mean, I wanted to put on muscle mass because I wanted to have more respect from guys and I wanted to have a better, a better chance with girls. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's, that's an extrinsic type of motivation. And, um, at the time I didn't have the, uh, the knowledge or the understanding of what commitment was or what a why meant to me. So I was driven by external and interjected types of motivation for many, many years. Um, now over time, I started to view myself as a fit person and a hobbyist bodybuilder. So integrated was in play and I really started to enjoy lifting. So I actually got to intrinsic, but like I said before, intrinsic isn't always possible for people and that's okay. Muhammad Ali had a famous quote where, and you might be familiar with this, where he said that um, um, he hated every moment of working out, but mm -hmm. he loved winning. Yeah. Muhammad Ali never made it to intrinsic. And I want to point that out because I don't want people to feel upset if they just don't love going to the gym or, <laughs> you know, eating and eating in a certain manner. That That's okay. Right. Um, you know, he had, he he viewed himself as the best and he damn well made sure that it was so. So he had integrated motivation that kept him going for an incredible career. So you can motivate yourself into some of these, you can, you can upgrade yourself into some of these higher levels of, of internalized motivation, like um, identified, integrated and, uh, and intrinsic. And as long as you have one of those as your base, you can do just fine. And just because you don't have that in the beginning, don't get frustrated. Because like I said, most of us don't start out with those in the beginning. Most of us start out with some some sort of external motivation. Maybe a, a, you know, you want to look good at the beach. That's okay. It's fine. Um, you know, it's getting into the, taking those first steps. is the most important thing. And like we talked about earlier, motivation is the result of action. So start yourself down that path. When you're a coach, you can ask your clients open-ended questions. And the way that I do this and, um, and, you know, people can do this for themselves, sit down, um, with my clients, I have intake forms and initial interviews. And, uh, and I ask them why they want to do, th do things. And we go through a similar process to your five whys. 
And asking them their whys will allow you to get an idea of where their motivations lie. You can categorize their motivations and note their baselines. And I have my clients check in every two weeks. We do biweekly um, check-ins. And I incorporate some motivation-related questions at their check-ins to monitor how they're how they're doing. And I don't say, oh, you know, I, I don't show them specifically this continuum. I keep an ear out and I say, okay, well, you know, what, what, what um, successes did you have this period? Where are you noticing benefits? And a lot of times they'll say, you know what, the generic, one of the generic ones is I was able to keep up with my kids when I wasn't before. Great. Mm -hmm. Note that down, bring it up to them. Unexpected compliments goes, go a long way as does a wearing them on progress beyond the scale. And so when you periodically meet back up and you can do this, if you're a, a person and you're taking this journey by yourself every two or three weeks, meet back up and say, okay, well, you know, how do I feel about this fitness journey that I'm on? What benefits am I getting out of this? And that can give you some ideas of what is starting to come into your line of view as things that matter to you. And they're going to change over time. You're not going to immediately start working out and say, man, I really love working out. You're not going to immediately start working out and say, man, I feel so much better when I work out. It doesn't work that way. The first month that you work out, you're going to be sore as shit. And you're going to be like, why did I do this? Push through that continue on and you'll start to see all these benefits that you didn't know were even possible. And so I think that by having these mindfulness exercises, either by having a coach incorporate these into their periodic check-ins or having a person periodically ask themselves these questions. And if you've got questions on how to set these up, look me up on, on Instagram, Dr. Dr. Allen Bacon, A-L-L-A-N Bacon, and send me a message and I can help with a back and forth to, to get you guys going on these things. Um, but um, but come up with a way to monitor these mindfulness exercises to, to ask yourself some questions. Okay. What am I really getting out of this? You know, and, and certainly you're going to have some spots where you're like, I, I don't really love this, but what do you like out of it? What, <laughs> what are you benefiting from? Because if you're not finding any benefit in any of this, this is not something that's going to be sustainable anyways. So don't lie to yourself about it, but be honest and say, okay, well, where am I finding benefit? And it doesn't have to be the scale. It can be all these other, um, you know, less than concrete things that, that you get benefits out of. Are you getting stronger? Are you feeling more confident in life? Are you feeling happier? Are you sleeping better? Um, you know, there's all these different benefits to exercising and eating healthy that, um, that we kind of push under the rug because we just want to see that scale drop. Yeah. yeah. And so as a coach and as a person who's being mindful of this, always think of ways that you can foster this, um, this, motivation down that continuum of internalization. I mean, at this point, you can look at that, um, at that, um, that setup, that continuum, and you can say, okay, well, I think I'm here when I'm starting, you know, what, what appears in this next stage or two that I could be, that I could potentially be getting out of this. And when you realize that you are getting something out of it, that's in those stages, great. You know, make, make a note of that, write it down. Um, Ultimately, as a coach, the more internal the motivation, the more productive it is. So if you can nudge a person to uh, identified, integrated, or intrinsic, you're doing a wonderful, wonderful job. And since those are um, extremely productive forms over time, these are the things that, um, that, that you'll get the most out of. And not only will you give your clients a longer lasting experience, but it'll be much more enjoyable for them in the process. So the most important things, those intrinsic needs should be focused on, particularly if you're programming for somebody else, or if you're doing it for yourself, think of ways that you can improve that, you know, give your clients choices. If you're doing this yourself, you obviously have choices, but if you're, if you're having someone else program for you, ask for some choices, 
or, you know, be, be open to giving your clients some choices. Because like I said, there's a lot of different ways that you can get where you want to be. Um, be conscious of your knowledge of a situation. If you need it, reach out to people. And this is where relatedness really comes into play. You can improve relatedness and autonomy, or sorry, you can improve competence and autonomy by increasing your relatedness. Join a CrossFit gym with somebody who knows how to program. Um, you know, join a Facebook fitness community with a, an admin staff that really knows what they're doing. Um, you know, hire a coach that knows what he or she is doing. If you do this, you're going to set yourself up for the best long-term progress you can possibly have because you're going to be giving yourself that support structure that you're going to need. And particularly when you're starting out, you're not going to know everything and that's okay. We don't expect you to, no coach is going to expect you to, but you need that parachute to be able to ask questions. And, uh, and in the fitness community, um, I found that there are a lot of people that are very willing to give their time even for free to help out a lot of people. Now that doesn't mean that you can go to a coach and say, Hey, make me a program because mm. you're not going to go to the grocery store and just walk out with food. So you, you can't <laughs> ask that of a coach, but I mean, I have a fitness community on, um, on Facebook, the Maui athletics group, and, you know, we answer questions in there every day. There's certainly a lot of related type of groups and, uh, and you can get a lot, you can get a great start off of that. And then maybe you'll find that coaching is right for you, or maybe you'll meet the people that you'll find that, that are right for you. Maybe you look up, you know, people like Bo to help you with, with, you know, what he's really good at and, and, uh, and you find those knowledgeable people, but make sure that you have that support structure in place rather than going in blind. And I know that it can be a daunting task, but like I said, it's never been easier than this. We've got so many options on where to get good information. It just takes some time to, uh, to search out those means. Yeah. We're in an age of almost limitless, uh, access to information. And like you were talking about, you know, uh, even a decade or two ago, you, you were at the mercy of whoever was there locally at your YMCA or mm -hmm. your, your Equinox or whatever. But, uh, yeah, um, I have the, I do have the, the, the graphic up here for anyone watching or on, on YouTube. Um, I do have to go to a lunch date shortly, but <laughs> I do think it's a great visual representation of everything we've been talking about. I don't know if you want to highlight any way for folks to, if they're watching or they want to click on the YouTube link, um, to see and, and read that. And again, maybe a way that they can figure out where they fall on that continuum. Um, and, and the last thing mm -hmm. I'll say before I let you answer that piece is I definitely know there's a lot of self-determined, self-motivated people who, to your point, don't necessarily know how to utilize those tools. And they're saying like, Hey, should I go do a small law program? Should I just, you know, should, what should I train for and, and connecting <laughs> to that? So, uh, quite a, quite a spectrum and continuum of, of that as well. But, uh, is there a way folks can utilize this, this, uh, visual that we have up on the screen here? Um, I actually, the one on my website is actually broken down a little bit more simply. So it's easier okay. to understand. And I give some examples in, nice. in each. And I'll, so I I'll would try to link that in the show. I would notes recommend, then. yeah, I would recommend going there and I can even, I can even send that to you, but I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a more understandable version of this broken down a little bit. Gotcha. And, uh, and it also has an article with it that kind of explains some of the things. So I think that that would be Perfect. an easier way to do it. Yeah. We'll definitely um, get that linked somewhere. If, uh, if you have questions, like I said, go to DR Allen Bacon or at DR Allen Bacon on Instagram, send me a message. If you have any questions about this, I don't mind helping out. Understand that I get a lot of messages, so it might take some time to respond, but I, I will get back to you. Um, you know, because I think that, that even with this, this outline, it can be a little bit difficult to understand certain ways to utilize it. And, um, and I think that having a little bit of guidance there could be beneficial for a lot of people. Um, so certainly reach out there. Feel free to do that anytime. 
Um, but there's a lot of resources for self-determination theory online. Now it's, it's heavy reading because yeah. it is a psychological theory. <laughs> and so it might just be easier to, to, uh, to get to my article and then, and then ask any questions that you might have. Um, and, and certainly if you want to go through Bo, I don't want to offer his services, but he can shoot me any questions that, that he might get and, um, and I'll help, you know, stay in touch with him and, and keep connected. Yeah. And then one of my other takeaways from, if I can summarize a lot of what you just threw out there at us is, um, from some of the the negatives of it, and again, maybe you can tell me where this fits in the the, the the continuum. But understanding that controlling your effort, and as a coach or parent or somebody in that situation, praising the effort, not the success, um, is something I've definitely heard a lot. And something as an expecting father, I'm trying to make sure I practice even more. Of hey, like you, I saw you studied really hard for that test, so it's mm -hmm. all right that you got to be. Let's see what else we can change in the effort so you can control what you can. That's always been a, a big part of my own mindset. Well, I, yeah, I mean, this is, remember when I said that, um, that self-determination theory is not synonymous with success. Right. Self-determined people fail. The, right. the important thing here is that you are enacting control over a situation. Remember, we're going back to competence and autonomy. You're enacting control over a situation. It's not over a specific outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where... When you do that, this is where failures become temporary learning experiences that can be leveraged for, for future success. So, you know, getting a B is certainly not a failure. So that's probably not, I, I didn't want to infer that that was the case, but you're gonna, I, I, come, I come from an immigrant family. Yeah, so I mean, mine, mine was these like were that. not acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> so you're gonna, you're gonna fail. Yeah. And, uh, and I say that with, with love you're going to fail. And that's okay. I mean, Bo and I have failed. Everybody fails. The people that succeed realize that they can do better in, in most cases. I mean, sometimes you'll look at a thing and you'll be like, there's nothing that I could have done better. Great. Then ignore it. Move on. If there is something that you could have done better, I am a big proponent of writing things down because I think that if we just think it, we'll lose that within like 24 hours. But if we write it down, we can reference that and say, okay, you know, I was challenged this period. And I find that the, one of the biggest issues that most people have is they have a tendency when they get challenged to hit the pause button. And you might have seen this with your patients and clients where they're, they're like, oh, my life's getting difficult for two or three months. Can I hit the pause button on coaching or, or mm -hmm. whatever it is? That doesn't teach you anything. It yeah. teaches you how to quit. It doesn't <laughs> teach you how to weather through adversity. Right. So rather than looking at it as, oh, things are going to be difficult, I should quit. Look at it as what can I do in this situation? Inact control where you can enact control, yep. um, you know, rather than on the specific outcome. So when you were talking, this all kind of, kind of ties back in together. This is where the learning and habit-based goals and goals come into play. And this is where you can act and control and have objective measures to see if you are controlling what you can control. You know, people will come to us and they'll say, um, people have a tendency to sign up for coaches when life is magical. They have no they have nothing to do other than getting into the gym and, and cooking food. And then all of a sudden life hits and reality mm -hmm. steps into play. And maybe we did a programming thing for them where they had five days a week of weight training. And now all of a sudden they can do three people are really bad. And this is not a, a client's fault, but people are really bad at telling their coach, I can't do five days anymore because you feel like a failure. But this goes back to that whole, not hitting the pause button. The reason that you're on the diet roller coaster every year is because you hit the pause button. So it, rather than doing that, have an open dialogue with your coach and your coach should be allowing you or should be telling you that this is part of the process. But having an open dialogue with your coach where 
um, the coach says, okay, I want to know how you're feeling about completing your learning and habit-based goals week to week, and we can adjust accordingly. Because the way that a good coach or a long-term advanced athlete works is they may not be able to get in five days a week, even though they, they've been doing that for three years straight. Now, all of a sudden, they can only get in three. And that's okay because they're adjusting it so they're doing something rather than nothing. They don't lose the progress that they've made, and they know that they're in a holding pattern, but that's better than losing those habits and routines that you have been building, um, losing the systems that you have in place. I mean, there's there are distinct benefits to just continuing going to the gym, even if it's only 20 minutes. It's it's forming that habit that you continue to do this. This is just part of your daily process. And if you can only get in for 30 minutes, good. That's better than nothing. And more so than the benefits to your health, which you can still see pretty significant benefits at 30 minutes, more so than the benefits to your health, it keeps that pattern going. So you don't have this two or three month period. And then you try to come back and you say, I can't get back into this routine. You don't lose that routine. Yeah. So that, that habit and learning based goal that those, those systems that you're reinforcing tend to last much more long-term when you view it as, okay, well, what can I do this week? Mm -hmm. And having that open conversation with your coach is the way to do that. And so that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And I, I would, I think we could keep going and uh, maybe Jason of revolutionary you has the right idea, breaking this into four hour long episodes. Um, but maybe uh, I was the pro maybe that I was the problem there. He's like, this guy won't shut up. So I got to do <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I'm saying I want to continue. So I'd love to have you on for a part two, but yes, my wife is texting me like, Hey, we got to sure. go. We got a, we got a lunch date, which, uh, yeah. But um, I would I would love to stay. But uh, folks know where to find you again, Dr. Alan Bacon, Dr. Alan Bacon, um, similar to my handle here um, and uh, on Instagram. And again, folks can reach out to me. They should be able to comment in wherever they're listening or watching to this and, and uh, should be plenty of links everywhere to reach out and connect. But uh, anything else you want to leave the folks with under 30 seconds? <laughs> no, I think I think that we've we've covered enough for today, but but it was a great talk. And I want to thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you so much for your time. I did want to ask the uh, the logo is is it the Iron Man play that because you called it the Oh, that, no, that was just because of the placement on that one shirt yeah. where, where yeah. I had it in the arc reactor. This is this the is just a, oh, sorry. This is yeah. just a stylized wave for, uh, <laughs> for Mali athletics. Gotcha, and, gotcha. Uh, I saw the yeah. arc reactor thing though. I figured it was an Iron Man reference at least. Oh, that one was. Yeah. yeah it was okay. definitely. And you know what's really funny is that but my apparel, this is not a selling thing, it's just a funny anecdote. My apparel is actually on Amazon Prime. Nice. And um, so I have the I have that thing on my website in the shop, and then it links you to Amazon Prime. Mm. But what's really funny is Amazon denied that. They're like, you can't use this word. Huh. They're like Marvel owns that. I'm yeah, like, yeah, really? yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I'm not surprised. I mean, technically, yeah. Bo Jackson owns Bono's stuff uh yeah bo knows he owns bo yeah, knows, bo knows. So I, I had a friend the an attorney look up uh that she said he does technically own the copyright so until bo jackson contacts me directly and tells me to cease and desist i will i will <laughs> i will keep running with it but i do have i actually was gonna i have the bo jackson bo knows with bo jackson of kansas city royals hat thing mm -hmm. anyway but um all right uh, we can keep talking i appreciate this i would love to do uh, 17 more parts. Um, really good stuff. I hope, uh, I, I don't know if you saw the comment when you were talking at some point, Phil was ch checking in. He said mahalo to you and, um, he, he, he's, uh, he, he had to run, but he's going to go back and listen to the replay. So cool. uh, other than that, uh, I, I'm not even going to pull up thunderstruck because we got to run, but, uh, again, would love to chat more. If anyone got at least 1% better from this. I can't imagine how you would not if you paid any attention. Um, we got we covered a lot of stuff. And um, folks, hopefully uh, go share this with someone you love uh, that you can benefit from, they can benefit from. And uh, till next time, mahalo.
Thanks, buddy. Hey, before you take off, please don't forget to leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this. Apple and Spotify really help us grow. And if you could just share it with one person, hit that share button directly. Think of someone who you think will benefit from this episode. I can think of a few people right now. I'm going to send it out. Join me. Share it out. Really means the world. Hope you guys enjoyed and we'll talk to you next time.